0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Guardian reporter luke Enrique Gomez. Luke joined me to talk about the threats to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The coalition government is currently proposing a number of changes to the NDIS, as well as their proposed independent assessments. Luke's exclusive reporting has revealed secret documents that detail how these proposed independent assessments for NDIS recipients will save the federal budget $700 million and lead to smaller funding packages on average for disabled people. We talk about all of these issues and more. And I'm delighted to welcome back onto this show uh, a contributor to the program who really needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. His name is Luke Enriquez Gomes. He does really brilliant and literally award-winning reporting on welfare and inequality uh, for the Guardian Australia And Luke joins us often to talk about things relating to JobSeeker, which is the unemployment payment, also disability and disability support pension, as well as the National Disability Insurance Scheme and other related issues. So I welcome Luke now. Thank you so much for joining me again. And uh, how are you doing, Luke?
1: I'm going very well, Amy. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. Yeah. Surprisingly cheaper. (laughs) Given the content we're about to get into,
1: yes,
0: uh, maybe I won't be at the end. But it's something that at least uh, we're getting some more information about. And in that sense, it shows the value of an upper house, a Senate House of Review, where we do see um, some of these policies put under really kind of fierce examination and it's become harder and harder to actually do that because certainly departments have become more adept at having things taken on notice and then not really providing any information or not particularly useful information in some cases to the questions that senators put to them. But I do think it's quite relevant to the conversation we're about to have um, about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mm-hmm. So, uh, colloquially or shortly um, by acronym termed the NDIS, this is a scheme which we have discussed in the past and it is really something that I know so many people who are on the NDIS really deeply value and appreciate and um, feel that it has changed their lives and made things a lot easier for them and in many cases helped to improve their functionality and to help them engage in the activities that they want to do um, Mm -hmm. on an everyday basis and a lot of equipment and um, changing the fit out of your house is a very expensive thing to go through if you certainly don't have the funds and perhaps employment is limited um, in that sense. So this is a scheme that really does have quite a great significance, not just in a practical sense, but also in a political sense for the Labor Party, because as we know, this was something that uh, Julia Gillard and Bill Shorten really um, felt very closely aligned to and passionate about. So it's something that uh, has this dual element to it, this kind of political element and also this clear practical element. And so when we talk about changing the NDIS and improving it, so to speak, this is when things
1: can become a bit contentious, can't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's um, Bill Shorten, uh, who's now Labor's um, NDIS um, spokesman, was giving a a, a speech at the Press Club last week and he sort of made the point that, you know, in terms of big ideas in Australian politics and big, I guess, social uh, policy reforms, I mean, the NDIS is kind of the big one of the last two decades, really. Like, it it, it is enormous um, and life-changing. And um, I guess for people who, I suppose, support the you know, progressive side of politics. That's the sort of things, um, certainly what Bill Shorten was saying, is the sort of thing that you sort of expect or hope that a a Labor government would do. And I suppose the uh, flip side to that would be that, um, you know, although the coalition has, uh, you know, it did support the introduction of the NDIS and um, after it was established at the start, Labour Loss government. So it has been the coalition that has basically been um, uh, administering it and setting it up until it got to, you know, it took about five years, five or six years to get to the full scheme where all the states um, were involved and it was running up and running everywhere. But you're right, it is it does become contentious. And, I mean, I think the, the fact is that... Um, That's because it's a $22 billion a year scheme. And so you kind of have this debate that kind of has always existed but seems to be really sort of intensifying now about can we afford this big social program? And I guess we can get into the ins and outs of that in a a moment, but that's kind of where it's headed is now the scheme is at its full operation. It's running in all the states. Um, We're starting to see... More and more, um, I guess, explicit commentary from the the people that run the the NDIS, the Ndia, the the agency, as well as now the government and the new minister Linda Reynolds about you know this thing is growing more quickly than we ever expected. Can we afford it? Can do it? We need to make changes, basically. Which I guess is kind of the perennial tension, isn't it, in sort of in politics in general, but you know, in Australia, for example. You have these big social reforms that get introduced, um, whether it's in healthcare or in education or, you know, in, this, in the welfare system or in this case, um, sort of a disability social insurance program. And then you have, I guess, the other side of politics that question, I guess, the financial viability of that scheme. And that seems to be the central tension in, in politics in general. And that's where the NDIS, I think, has, has landed right about now, to be honest.
0: Well, I saw in your reporting that um, one of the documents, I think, revealed that the program or the scheme was growing faster than the government had anticipated Mm -hmm. and six times faster than the agency wants it to grow. So the projections, I guess, and the budgeting that had been made was around $21.3 billion, up to about $27.8 billion at this point. And people are saying, well, you know, when we're talking about reforming the system or reforming the program, we need to remember what the original intent of the scheme was and the spirit of the scheme, which was that it wasn't supposed to be like Social Security and it wasn't meant to be. A capped program. It was meant to focus on what was fair and reasonable, and you know, necessary adjustments and necessary resources that someone requires. And looking at it from that medical and functional evidence base, rather than from this um, financial base.
1: Mm, And I think that that's that's right. And so I think that that's the first point to make is that um, the the central uh, you know, because the government is sort of saying, oh well, you know. Compared to what the Productivity Commission, um, who helped design the scheme, compared to how they thought this was going to grow, it's growing much faster than that. But. The also, it's also, as you say, important to recognise that the point of the scheme is that people should get the, you know, what are called supports, funding for the various things that they might need in their life. They should get that if it's considered reasonable and necessary for their lives, right? It wasn't supposed to be this kind of limited pool of money and then we divvy it up in between the participants based on what we bet afterwards, sort of after determining what the pot of money is, then we sort of divvy up what we think that they could get. Based on that pool of money, so that's, I guess, an important point to make. And I think you know, we're now we're at a point where the government is kind of being much more open about you know what it says it's trying to do because it is brought forth um, under the old Minister Stuart Robert a bunch of reforms or changes overhauls to the scheme. Um, but it never was open about why it wanted to do that last year. It kind of was saying, oh, this is just about making the NDA better and fairer in kind of using these sorts of slogans and sort of saying, well, you know, this is about fulfilling the original intent of the scheme. But now I think they kind of have lost that argument because the disability community is basically uh, universally opposed to some of the things that they're going to do, which we, guess we can talk about in more detail in a sec. And so, therefore, they've kind of now gone, okay, right, we need to sort of set up a new argument here if we're going to get these reforms through. And now they're talking more openly about, oh, well, if we don't do these things, the scheme is not going to be sustainable and it's not going to be there for you know future participants and the like. But I think everyone sort of knows that the things that they had proposed last year, they were doing it for the same reasons. They just weren't being honest about it, right? They weren't being honest about the fact that this was about... Uh, we can have a semantic discussion about the difference between cuts or slowing the growth in spending and slowing the growth in the number of people who access the scheme, but that's basically what the aim was, right? It was they want to put the NDAS on a, uh, in their mind, a more sustainable footing. So I guess at least now the debate can be had under sort of more honest terms, right? You can yeah. sort of, you can. it's at least now, it's Stuart Robert, you know, for all his kind of, he had a very, um, you know, everyone sort of says he had a very competitive relationship with some disability organisations and, and so far Linda Reynolds has struck a much more, uh, I don't know, collegiate tone. But, but uh, Stuart Robert wasn't actually particularly honest about what it is now that Linda Reynolds has said yesterday at a Senate committee, which is basically, Oh, we need to make a whole bunch of changes, or the scheme is not going to be sustainable. Now, none of the policies have changed, right? So, yeah. so, so, she's only revealing that that was the reason why the government was bringing forth these changes in the first place. Um, I think, and I guess quickly, the other point to make is, um, uh, Bruce Bonnyhady, who's um, you know the initial chair of, of the NDIA, uh, you know, sort of considered an architect of the scheme. He was saying uh, last week or two weeks ago at a, a Senate inquiry that you know, well, if there's such a big issue with scheme sustainability, why have we only heard about it now? Like what's changed? Because, you know, 18 months ago, the the NDIA was saying in some of its own documents that there were no issues and everything was fine. So Mm. what's been the big change in in 12 to 18 months that has meant that this is now growing at, at, you know sort of at, at an out of control speed what, what's happened and the other point you made I guess is well it's the same people running it so you know who should be taking responsibility for that um so I think those are those are some sort of points that you'll probably be hearing in this debate as it plays out
0: Yeah, well, certainly a number of governments have used pandemics and recessions and economic issues to then get through some of the unpopular changes they've been wanting to make for a long time. So perhaps that's one potential explanation for the timing. It does seem quite surprising that it has happened so out of the blue and also that the government could choose to spend so much money on JobKeeper and also give that money and really have few conditions attached to it in the sense that those businesses who ended up doing well and even put that money into executive bonuses now don't have to pay it back. So it does seem like it's also a quite blatant situation of you know where you choose to put your money versus um, where it's required at the moment, what the policy priorities are. But Luke, let's talk about... One of the changes that have been made before we get to independent assessments, Mm. or one of the proposed changes, I should say, there are a number, as you said, one of them is that there would be an increased debt recovery scheme for participants who, quote unquote, break the rules. Um, That's just kind of like air quotes to say, I don't quite understand what breaking the rules would cover. But I did see that there were reports that two senior public servants who worked on the controversial robo-debt scheme um, are now working in compliance for the NDIA. And that certainly has rung alarm bells for people involved with the scheme, um, obviously, given the past history of it and the fact that it went to court. And was found to have breached the law. What are your thoughts on that, and also the proposed changes to the legislation that governs the NDIS and the NDIA?
1: So yeah, uh, that, that was the, that report you're referring to by Rick Morton in the Saturday Paper, has been doing great reporting on the NDIS. Yes, yeah, so I guess there's that aspect of you know who's sort of working on these reforms um, to the NDIS Act, which you know determines. Um, basically how the whole thing works and then um, you mentioned the debt recovery potential I guess mechanism it's hard to know what that will actually mean because that mechanism, that proposed mechanism you're referring to, is included in some draft legislation which was leaked, uh, which um, Bill Shorten's office appeared to um, get its hands on. So obviously that reflects the sort of uh, frustration within some public servants uh, within the NDIA. Well, basically what that is is that the government was going to introduce big sweeping changes to the NDIS Act and this debt recovery thing, you know, recouping money from people who uh, get money uh, for particular supports and then apparently spend it on other things or don't spend it in the way that the agency is happy with would allow them to, to claim that money back kind of like, sort of similar to what happens in the social security system that is supposedly one thing that is proposed but you know the government has not released the actual draft legislation so we don't really know what's going to be in there and what's not and some of the other things that were in that in the leaked draft have been ruled out by the minister so Hard to know. I think more broadly, though, that change to the NDIS Act, that legislation which we still haven't seen, it's. I think the big worry for people, disability advocates, they've been sort of very concerned about any changes to this idea of reasonable and necessary. Right? Those are kind of the. Those are kind of the magic words in the NDIS, basically. Right? It's the principle that allows people to get almost anything provided that they can make a reasonable a case that it's reasonable and necessary and it goes back to what we talked about before the principle that this is not a scheme that should be capped uh, and this is not a scheme that should I guess place barriers in front of people with disabilities it should be up to them to determine what their goals are and then for them to make a case that these are things that are reasonable and then the agency can make a decision on that basis we do know the government is unhappy with how broad that principle is. And so Linda Reynolds said yesterday, there are so many different definitions of reasonable and necessary. And so we need to create, that we need to put up some boundaries, right? That means that the, the agency is, is going to, and the government is going to write laws in a particular way that will either allow the minister to determine what things are not necessary in a sort of unilateral fashion so the obvious thing um which i think we've talked about before is uh, sex worker services or sex sex therapy services uh which stuart robert the previous minister said he was uh, completely opposed to but the federal court said should be funded if a person can make the case it's reasonable and necessary um, but other things as well so basically it's a big change that would allow the government to say Yeah, we we did originally start the scheme saying you could basically fund anything that wasn't funded by the states. Anything that was not funded by the state's health systems can be funded by the NDIS if it's reasonable and necessary. And now the government's saying, no, we don't agree with that anymore. We want to put up boundaries that prevent certain things from being funded. It's a a very big change and and people with disabilities and their, their advocates are concerned about it.
0: Well, I noted that in the hearing yesterday that you were following along on and um, reporting on that there were some stories recounted by participants in that hearing talking about particular stories or examples where the National Disability Insurance Agency was pushing back on some of the requests that people had made. And there was one story about someone who had epilepsy wanting a a mat that was really essential to their own safety if they were having an epileptic seizure. And it had a really unfortunate outcome, but it certainly did highlight the fact that it doesn't seem like it's a, a complete free-for-all. There do seem to be instances where the NDIA pushes back on things that others might consider to be reasonable and necessary.
1: Well, that's right. So the NDIA, uh, I guess that the, the tension here right, is that the law itself is quite broad and allows for lots of things to be funded, but the agency is still responsible for determining in its own way what it chooses to fund, right? So that's the tension. And so often it just says no to people and then they have to go to the um, AAT, which is like the tribunal, which can allow you to appeal decisions like NDIS decisions. And then the A- the AAT might say, actually, no, the law says that this could be funded, so it should be funded. I um, mean, in the case of Liam um, Danaher, who, who you know died at um, the age of 23, whose case came up yesterday in, in the inquiry, Yes, you know, his, his family were fighting to get that seizure mat for months, and the agency engaged lawyers, as it often does, to, to make its case that this should not be funded. So, yes, it's not a complete free-for-all at all. The agency makes decisions which often prevent people from getting funding that they want. The agency often says no to people and beyond that, the agency sometimes says no to people and then is found by the sort of independent umpire to have denied people funding, which under the law they were, you know, they had the right to get. So that sort of reflects, I suppose, why the government is now making these changes to the law because it wants greater protections to sort of substantiate the decisions it's making because it's attitude towards what should be funded and what's not internally is not entirely consistent with the law, which is, a, 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 you know, for want of a better word, a bit more generous than its sort of internal attitude towards these things.
0: Mm. Luke, let's also talk about something we have delved into in detail last time we spoke, because it was at the time very contentious. It still is. And we have seen some movement in this space from the government and also i guess a clarifying of the topic and that is the independent assessments and you mentioned bruce Hady who is the melbourne disability institute director and as he said considered to be the architect of the ndis he said in that parliamentary inquiry you were referring to earlier that quote independent assessments are not independent he said that robo-planning will blow up the NDIS and it will also blow up the vision for this scheme to be there for all Australians. So there's some strong words there, some very clear language and certainly I don't think anyone would be confused as to what he is saying about independent assessments. We have talked about them, but for those who may have missed our conversation, what are independent assessments? And now that we have this greater information, your reporting that I was mentioning earlier, um, in terms of the secret documents from the NDIA, and also we now have the information from the minister in charge, Minister Reynolds, from yesterday and her assessments. So with all of that in mind, um, now that we have more information, what are these proposed independent assessments that, although they're supposedly paused, are actually still
1: likely to go ahead? Uh, so the assessments are, at the moment, a participants and applicants to the NDIS submit reports and, you know, evidence from their own treating specialists. And then that is assessed by the agency. And what the government wants to do is have people go and do an interview of about three hours, give or take, with an allied health professional that is contracted by the government. They would uh, essentially conduct a questionnaire and, and the government says that this would make it more consistent because it believes that people's own specialists are essentially biased and they're giving people more generous uh, assessments than, than is appropriate. Um, the, which
0: is controversial, given that these are, you know, doctors and allied health professionals.
1: It's it's, it's controversial. Uh, it's also consistent with what they did with the Disability Support Pension, which mm. is introduce the, sort of a government doctor to uh, also oversee that process. And basically this is created an almighty fight between the disability community who are completely opposed to it and the old minister, Stuart Robert, now the new minister, Linda Reynolds, has said last month uh, she was going to pause the rollout. These were supposed to start in the middle of the year. She said, we're going to press pause. And the community basically thought, oh, this is great because it means that there might be scrapped. She's still deciding whether or not to go ahead with it. And her language was, I think, a little untidy and didn't quite um, make the point that she made yesterday, which is that actually... Uh, she's committed to rolling these out and the consultation period that she's uh, said she would undertake is only really aimed at determining a a version of these assessments which perhaps might be a bit more favourable or perhaps be preferred. So she's not at all considering getting rid of this policy. Uh, She's just said, we're going to delay it and we're going to talk to people to try and come to a version of it that the community is perhaps able to support. Um, That seems unlikely at this point because there is literally universal opposition from the disability community uh, and as you mentioned Bruce bonny Haiti as well has been incredibly vocal about why he thinks it's a bad idea. The Australian Medical Association uh, recently came out against the proposal from the government and a whole bunch of other health organisations and um, legal groups and the like. It's pretty much at the moment universally opposed except from John Walsh who is another former NDIS executive. He supports them but aside from that they are very unpopular, and so this does set up a real, you know, it does set the new minister on a collision course with them, the, the community very early on in her tenure as the minister.
0: Well, some of the questions that you're asked are kind of weird and um, don't make a lot of sense to many people. I mean, one of them is can you count coins? I'm not using the direct language here, but it approximately is asking can you catch a bus? Mm. These are yes or no questions answer questions there's no ability to qualify things and you know anyone who has a disability would know that it's not a black and white yes or no answer for pretty much all of the questions that people are asked like can you dress yourself well maybe for some people it depends on the day Um, you know if their condition is fluctuating uh, or neurological so this is something that I know people are rightly concerned by not just because of the fact that the person who's doing it is someone unknown to them Mm. and it's only three hours and it is this really stressful situation where someone has to basically redisclose their disability to a new person and go into all the detail in a very simplistic fashion of Mm. how it affects them and their functioning. So I can absolutely understand why not just people in the disability community, but also those who are advocates for people with disabilities are really worried about it. What are your thoughts around this change? I'm not going to call it a reform because it's really not. What do you think about this change and the fact that your reporting has revealed... I guess, something that people in the disability field were concerned about and we've discussed before, which was, is this just a way to try and cut down participants' funding portions and also to reduce the number of people who can access the NDIS?
1: So, yes, we reported documents that we'd seen which showed that uh, last year there was an estimate that these introducing these assessments would reduce spending the, by $700 million, right, $700 million saving. In, in, intriguingly, the Department Secretary and the Minister said they weren't aware of that figure at um, Senate uh, estimates yesterday, which I found intriguing, but, um, you know, the documents I've seen are fairly categorical, so we'll see how that plays out. They're not normally documents that... Uh, government officials or ministers would confirm anyway and I, you know obviously put those questions to them and I didn't get a denial when I asked them uh, a couple of weeks ago but I guess putting that issue to one side the government has been arguing first it or first tried to argue that um, you know these assessments are not about cutting funding or the growth in spending uh, it's about making um, the system fairer and there is an argument to be made for that because it is true that if you have access to, uh, you know, sort of family support or, uh, you know, you live in an area with an access, access to better health professionals, you can access the private system more easily, you, you have more money to pay for reports, you can potentially get better, a better outcome. Uh, there is inequality in the NDIS, and, and none of the organisations or advocates deny this, and they say that it's something that needs to be worked on. They just don't support this proposal, which sort of says, basically, therefore, we need to sort of reduce funding for some people in order to make it fairer. That's kind of the principle, which the government uh, had been denying. But I think Linda Reynolds yesterday made it a bit clearer that, no, this is a a change based on making the scheme, quote, more sustainable, which is kind of a euphemism for reducing the growth in spending or cuts basically not well not cuts but um i guess uh trying to stop how much money we spend on 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 the program so i mean i think it is important to note that the people uh, who are opposed to this change independent assessment they don't say everything's working great there are issues with particularly people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds missing out on a, a package of the same quality or size as someone else because They are limited in, I guess, the supports or the reports that they can gather and and that sort of stuff. That's true. But I think the fundamental principle has always been that this is supposed to be a a scheme based on co-design, right? And so if you're trying to solve a problem that everyone acknowledges exists with a proposal that everyone is against, perhaps it's time to go back to the drawing board rather than sort of pushing ahead with it because, That doesn't really sound like co-design, does it? I mean, often, you know, people will say there's almost universal opposition to these changes, but it's kind of an exaggeration. But in this case, it is literally all the organisations are categorically opposed. It's it's quite stunning. And so if this go ahead, I mean, it will be the government doing something to the disability community about a scheme that directly affects them and is based on helping them that's they are opposed to, and I think that shouldn't be forgotten.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly does raise the question about whether these changes would, in fact, ensure that disabled people are treated with respect and dignity. It certainly doesn't seem that that's how it would be delivered, given how the trials have been going, based on what trial participants have said has mm. been their experience. And I know that you have spoken individually to a number of them to get a sense of about how they felt about the process and what kinds of issues it brought up for them. What are the insights that you've gleaned from these discussions with people who have a disability who are directly affected?
1: Um, Well, I guess the first point to make is that obviously the people that I've spoken to, uh, you know, people who have decided that they want to talk to me and about their experience. And so I suppose by definition, people that are unhappy about the, the way that those, these assessments are carried out. But in saying that, it's kind of what we talked about earlier, that the questions are just so blunt that you can't really get across People have felt that they couldn't quite get across things that are important that should be taken into account when determining whether they should be eligible for the NDIS or whether, you know, what funding packages they should get. And also, I guess, I think, you know, one um, lady that I spoke to, Nicole Rogerson, who's um, the head of an autism organization and whose son has autism, was just saying that, like, it was really. Quite a negative experience because her son was asked these questions that just made him feel really bad about himself. It focused on all this stuff that he couldn't do, and you know he, you know, she ended up stopping the assessment midway through because she just felt that it was not a very pleasant experience and if you compare that to I suppose going and seeing your treating specialist somebody that you you know you've developed a relationship with it's a different experience to going and knowing okay I've got three hours give or take with this person that I've never met and in that interview this is you know going to be a fundamental part of whether I'm granted access to the NDIS or what my funding package will look like like that's quite nerve-wracking right like mm-hmm. you know Bill Shorten has been kind of making the rhetorical point quite effectively about like you know people are going to be going to re-interview for the NDIS and like yeah it's not quite like that but it, it kind of is as well so it's uh, you can understand the anxiety, right? And if the, the agency, you know, for the people that have taken part in these trials, it's refused to actually tell people what the plan would look like based on the assessment, the independent assessment, right? So they're doing these trials and saying, oh, we, you can get a sense of what the assessments are like. And obviously the experience that a person has in that assessment is important, but I think most people would agree that the, the main point is, okay, what's the outcome? What would my plan look like? And the, the people that I've spoken to who've asked for that information, like, oh, can we get a draft plan based on this assessment? They've actually been told, oh, no, we're not doing that. Was well, just like, well, okay, what's the point then, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like if I was going to be wanting to take part in, in something like this, I would eventually want, like the point of it is to know and how will this impact the funding that I get? That, that seems to me to be the central question. And and actually the NDIA has not been transparent about that. So... Yeah, there are a myriad issues um, with it, but um, I guess we'll see the government says it's going to release the, the the results from the second trial. This is the second trial they're doing. They're going to release that um, soon. So I guess we'll find out what people uh, have been telling the agency um, about You know, whether they've thought it's a positive process or not. But important, as I've just said, to note, they'll only be talking about their experiences in the interview. They won't be talking about what, impact this would have on their funding and and that seems to me to be the central question which the trial is going to not have an answer for so
0: that's a really great point luke just finally the budget is coming up on tuesday and so i was wondering do you think that we'll get any sense of funding for the ndia and the ndis in terms of what we've been discussing today in terms of reducing or slowing down the growth of the budget for this
1: scheme well, uh, I mean, I guess the short answer to that question is that, well, there will be figures in the budget um, and we'll have to go back and compare what the sort of projections were in last year's budget um, over the forward estimates to what is in there. I mean, mm. Which is the... a
0: four-year period, I believe,
1: the forward yeah, estimates. Yeah, that's right. So, so the, the, I mean, the government has been saying, and Linda Reynolds said the, yesterday, that um, funding is actually out of control. So presumably there won't be sort of visible reductions in, in spending because according to the government, spending is rising much more quickly than they had envisaged and or hoped. So but there will be some additional data points in there that will be useful. But I, I guess also worth noting just quickly. The the NDIA has a, a financial sustainability report which it, it prepares, which is supposedly underpins all the data that, um, that now is being used to advance the case. that The scheme is, you know, growing out in an out-of-control fashion and it refuses to release that. So I just think that that's an important thing to, to point out and when the government and the agency band is about figures about the funding i mean we have to report what they say and and but it's hard to put them in in a, a broader context because the assumptions that are used to to underpin the projections and you know when they say oh it's going to grow by this percent in you know by 2024 or whatever we don't have the assumptions that underpin those projections and so that's important To point out we're sort of people reporting on it and advocates are kind of you know flying blind in a sense because we're just getting these headline the headline data from the agency when it wants to divulge what it wants to notably linda reynolds did say that she wants to see more transparency about the data so that's potentially a good thing and let's hope that she does that
0: yeah Luke, you've just been such a wealth of knowledge and insight on this topic, and I thank you for covering it with great depth and also accuracy and, It's been so valuable to have someone who really knows this and understands it. And, of course, as you said, Rick Morton as well at the Saturday paper. We've got two of the best journalists in the country covering this area, and I know that anyone who's interested in the issues of welfare and inequality and disability um, will be heartened to know that you are on the issue and uh, trying to uncover what the truth is of the matter. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and really um, explaining what these changes will mean for people
1: with a disability. Always good to be on, Amy. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: My pleasure. I've been chatting there with luke Enriquez Gomes and he is the welfare and inequality reporter for The Guardian Australia. He also covers federal politics more broadly as well. And you should absolutely check out his Twitter and also his
1: reporting on The Guardian's website,